So the reason I show this video is because I think it speaks to the brokenness of humanity and how we're all desperately trying to relate properly to ourselves. We're all trying to relate properly to other people and yet we don't do it very well. And we experience the brokenness of not relating properly. We experience the pain and the torment that that causes in us and it causes in other people when we don't relate properly. And we think that maybe if we don't relate properly and if we're not the people who we're supposed to be, then that God is going to shame us and God is going to judge us and and look down on us harshly and that the people who say they love us aren't going to respect us either and they're going to shame us and judge us. And yet I think that this video, a girl who runs away from home and yet is embraced and welcomed back is a beautiful picture of how our Heavenly Father works. Keep some of this in mind as we address these questions this morning. We are continuing our series titled Searching for Sophia this morning. You have brought some questions uh, to me, and I am doing my best to respond to them, and the questions that you have brought to me this morning are as follows. I was brought up thinking sex was bad. It shouldn't be mentioned it was a taboo subject. What does the Bible say about it? What does the Bible say are appropriate sexual parameters? Please address homosexuality. And I boiled these down to what does the Bible say about our sexuality or what is a biblical approach to sexuality? Father, we need your wisdom. We need your eyes. Father, we need your insight this morning. Father, we do pray that you would meet us in this place. Father, you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, Father, to receive you. (laughs) <laughs> if there's any hardness of heart, Father, this morning towards this subject, Father, whether it be through maybe past abuse or addiction, Father, or, or living outside of your, your parameters, Father, for this subject, Father, I pray that you would meet us with your grace this morning, but also your conviction, and that we might walk away from this experience, Father, more in love with you because of all the good things you have done for us, more knowledgeable about who you are. We pray these things in your holy son's name. Amen. So a few disclaimers in regards to this. I'm not going to explicitly address the issue of homosexuality this morning. Um, we are actually going to cover this series, uh, this topic in a series after Easter, and I will uh, address that topic explicitly there. So if you can hold off on a couple months, uh, for those of you who are interested in that topic, we will address that in a little while. Secondly, this message won't be overly graphic. I'm not really interested in stunning anybody. I'm interested in providing hope to a conversation that I think really, really needs redeeming and really, really needs the hope of the gospel. Further, that being said, I'm not going to apologize if you feel awkward at times. I'm not going to apologize if you feel uncomfortable. I'm not going to apologize if you feel offended at times. I'm going to call the devil into account and sin into account and how this issue in particular has been twisted and warped within our society and within the church. I was reminded this past week that God many, many years ago called me to be a prophet. And when I say that, I don't mean that someone who, you know, predicts what the future is going to be like, although I do have particular visions, if you will, of what restoration could be like. And what we as a body of people could accomplish and what God could accomplish through us and how this community could be changed, absolutely. 
I mean as a prophet, I mean someone who knows the great mercy and the love and the forgiveness and the unconditional worth and acceptance of God. And and I look upon a world and I see a world that is longing for unconditional acceptance and love and worth and forgiveness and grace and love. And they're looking for it in all the wrong places. And they're looking for it in, in sex and drugs and power and money and all the other things. They're looking for it in all the wrong places. And as a prophet, I want to bring and merge the world into the knowledge of God that I know. And as I walk further into the love of God, I want to take as many people of the world along with me on this journey. Because I think God has called us to be reconcilers. I think God has called us to be redeemers. And it's going to take being honest to the world. It's going to take being honest to us as a church community. About how we fail to live up to the the grace and the forgiveness and the unconditional acceptance and love of God. And how we choose all of those things ourselves. How we have set ourselves up as the king of our lives. We talk about that a lot here. How we set ourselves up as the king of our lives. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take being honest about how we do that. And encouraging you and empowering you and inspiring you to lay down your kingdom so that you might actually live in the way that God has intended you to live. I'm not really interested in giving you moral platitudes. That's never really been the thing I'm about. I'm not really good at telling people how they should live their lives. I want to I cast a vision of who God is, and I want to introduce you to that God. And I believe that as you get to know that God on a more intimate level, as the knowledge of God increases in you, then you will change. I don't need to tell you how you should change. I don't need to tell you how you should live your life. When you come into intimate knowledge and relationship with the God who is love, that will change you. And you will begin to love. And so I want to paint a big picture And I want to invite you into that big picture. So sex. It's obviously a big issue in our day and age. You know, in fact, there's never been a culture or a society in the history of the entire world that has done so much damage and distortion to sex. That that has idolized sex and put it up on a pedestal and looked at it so that it might give us life and happiness. We are the most sexually interested and sexually distorted society in the history of the world. And the reason I believe this is the case is because the church, by and large, has been shut up about it. At least for the last hundred years, the the church has not even addressed this topic, really. Not only the church, but Christian families have not addressed this topic. Because we think it's kind of taboo, and we think it's kind of awkward, and it's like, I don't know, I don't want to talk to my kids about that because it seems kind of weird. And we say, oh man, it's embarrassing to talk about. We don't talk about sex Oh, hold on. Can, can everybody say along with me the word sex? Sex. Let's do, try, try that again. Sex. You didn't melt. God didn't zap us. Sex and sexuality are real and valid, and because the church has not done a good job developing a biblical sexuality, men and women alike have run to the world to try to understand their desires. I read an article this week on Fifty Shades of Grey, and it said that this book and its movie are functioning as sex education for the American society. The world has the power to do this because we as parents and we as the church have been shut up about talking to our children and talking to us about this important topic. And when we do usually talk about it, it's usually shame-based with our children. And our kids grow up to either 
uh, resent their bodies and think their bodies as evil and their sexual desires as evil and their sexual drives as evil and wicked things. Or they just indulge their sexuality and it leads down all sorts of different roads. And so already in our household, we're talking about sexuality all the time. Right when my daughter Sophia, my 20-month-old, is in the bathtub with my 3-year-old and she, she looks over at his boy parts and she's like, what's that thing? That's different. What is that? Let me see. I need to intervene and say, Sophia, this is not appropriate behavior. Not to shame her for being interested or wondering, but to appropriately treat her and to train her. And then when my three-year-old Luke is at, the, is at the store with me, we're at Target, and he looks over at the magazine rack, and he runs over and he says, Daddy, look! Look at all the naked women, the half-naked women. Daddy, look! Naked! I could say, Luke, stop it! Stop that! Get over here! And I could shame him for being interested. Or I could teach him, I could train him about what is appropriate and what is inappropriate in regards to his sexuality. And my son, Ethan, who is a six-year-old, is already being educated by the world about his body and about his sexuality. About how boys interact with girls and girls interact with boys and boys interact with boys and girls interact with girls and it's all over the place. And so when he gets home off the bus and we know that he's sitting with older kids who have smartphones on his school bus, we need to ask him what he is viewing. We we need to be intentional with our children about what they're looking at and what they're viewing and about how the world is informing them and teaching them how to live as sexual people because they are sexual people. We are sexual people. God has created us male and female. We are sexual people. And so if we do not educate our children, if we do not educate from a biblical perspective what it means to be sexual people, then guess what? The world is going to do it for us. We need to talk about God's design and what God has created and what's right and how to celebrate sexuality within marriage, the context of marriage in particular, but also then as singles. And so please don't feel uncomfortable, all right? Please don't feel uncomfortable the church has made sex to be like Voldemort and Harry Potter. Everyone is afraid to say Harry, uh, Voldemort's name. Don't mention his name. It's he who should not be mentioned. And Dumbledore wisely comes around and he says, hey, you know, not talking his name, not saying his name is just giving the fear of him power. It's giving him the power he needs to rise again. And so our silence on sex has given it power and it, I think, has become a pretty monstrous thing. I mean, look at our culture, right? During this past Super Bowl, 10,000 prostitutes were shipped to Arizona to work the crowds. The expectation from the pimps was that their women would have 25 to 50 men a day. Greenlee, a former sex trafficking victim who was abducted and raped by her captors at age 12, told a local newspaper that she was shuttled around cities in the South to work as a prostitute at large-scale events. The 53-year-old, who now works as an advocate for sex trafficking victims in Louisiana, said there was immense pressure to meet her traffickers' demands at events like the Super Bowl. If you don't make the number of sex customers, you're going to dearly, dearly, severely pay for it, Greenlee said. I, I mean with beatings. I mean with over and over rapings, with just straight torture. And the worst torture they put on you is when they make you watch the other girl get tortured because of your mistake. And the mistake, again, of course, is not getting your 25 to 50 men per day. 
And then there is, of course, Fifty Shades of Grey. My friends, Fifty Shades of Grey is pornography. And just because it might be under the guise of erotica does not mean it's not porn. This book is unprecedented in the history of literature. Over 100 million copies of Fifty Shades have been sold. It's been translated into 52 languages. It's selling on a pace that you cannot compare anything to. The only person outselling E.L. James is God. The Bible is the only book in history that has sold more copies than this book. And guess what? The Bible's been in print for 500 years. This book has been in print for three. A group of Christian women were asked in 2012 what the most influential book of the year was for them. Anybody want to take a guess? Fifty Shades of Grey. It's a book about dominance, bondage, domestic abuse, manipulation, and erotica presented under the guise of sex. And because people think it's about sex, they must think that, man, there must be something about love in it. It must be saying something about love, and because it's saying something about love, then it can't be all that bad, so let's be justified in reading the book, and let's justify ourselves in watching the movie. Because love is wholesome, and love is pure, and if it's really about love, then hey, let's go do it. But there's nothing right about this phenomenon. And I'm not just going to beat you over the head with the Bible. Listen to what the world is saying. The secular world is equally disgusted with this movie as the church is. Here's what people are saying about the movie after seeing it. I I thought it would increase my desire and my sex drive. I I thought I would experience more pleasure and be drawn closer to my husband. But I actually developed a disdain for them. And myself. Another person said, I felt dirty after seeing it. One person said, I had regret for seeing it. Something told me while watching it that I shouldn't be here. Articles in the New Yorker and Self magazine say that if you want to have a great sex life with a real person, you need to push pause on porn. Because you will be drawn into your own way of fantasizing and creating expectations that no real human person will ever be able to meet. But we are broken people. We are broken people with a broken sexuality. We do not relate properly, first and foremost, to God, and therefore we do not relate properly to other people. We're broken people with broken lives and broken sexualities. I mean, how many of you sit in a room like this and think, I am broken? Yeah, man, I I am messed up. I don't have this life figured out. I am addicted to pornography. Or my husband has betrayed me. Or I'm in an affair and I don't know how to get out of it. Or I have homosexual thoughts. You know, statistically, a quarter of the women in this room have been either raped or abused sexually. We are broken people. And we all have a broken sexuality. We do not relate properly to one another And we all long to relate the way that we are supposed to. And when we don't, we try to create a false standard of relation. In our hope to relate, we we go to pornography. Or to another person, other than our spouse, that will relate uh, to us in an acceptable way. And so a study was done recently with 50 married men. 
These men had no pornographic addiction. They were given the hypothetical scenario, which was this. You and your wife get into an argument just before she leaves the house. What is your response? What do you do? Does anyone want to take a stab at what the overwhelming answer was? They look at pornography. They didn't pray. They didn't run outside of the house trying to reconcile their relationship with their wife. They didn't turn the TV on. No, they went to the web to look at pornography. And the reason we do this is because we do not relate properly. We all have this desire to be known and to be known in relationship and with the person that we are closest to, to be known and to be accepted unconditionally. So when I get in a fight with with my spouse who is supposed to love me unconditionally and I feel abused and I feel burdened and I don't feel like the person that I was created to be, then I'm going to go to a place that is going to fill me up in that way, that is going to love me unconditionally, going to treat me unconditionally. You know what porn does? It does that. You'll do all of these things for me. I just have to click some buttons and you will love me like this. You, you will tell me that you love me and that you care for me by expressing yourself this way. When I do not feel the unconditional love from the person who ought to be giving to me, then I go to some fabrication to receive it. And I don't blame the world for trying to discover some form of proper relationship. As twisted as their exploration may be, what the world is really seeking after is proper relationship. And so it's interesting, whenever you look at Scripture, whenever it's talking about sexuality in very heated terminology, it's speaking to Christians, not to the world. It reserves its judgment against Christians, not for those who do not know Christ. And so if you are here as investigating Christianity, you're, you're trying to figure out what this Christianity thing is all about. I have no, I have no moral expectations on your life. My, my, my expectation for myself upon your life is simply one thing. It's to love you. It's to embrace you in the love of God. It's not to condemn you. It's not to judge you. It is to love you. And for too long, it's been easy for Christians to condemn the outside world and cast judgment on the outside world. But really, we only have one responsibility and one disposition to the outside world, and that is love. But to us, in the church, the message is more severe. Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And so the message to the insider is simple. Sex within the context of marriage or abstinence. Now some of you are probably saying, Ross, that's so legalistic, that's so restrictive. And you know, it's not. God has created us in his own image, right? He's created us male and female. And he said, this is the genuine humanity. This is the proper way to be human. And whenever you do not live outside uh, inside this humanity, whenever you live outside of this humanity that I've created you to live in, then you are damaged. You live as damaged people. When you do not relate the way that I've called you to relate with others and with myself, you are damaged people. When we abuse the sexual mandate and fail to relate rightly to one another, it damages people. 
It abuses people. It damages you and those you are involved with. And so it's not like God has just had this list of rules on the wall and says, hey, you better follow these things. It's no, I have created you for a particular way to relate in a particular way with me and with other people. And when you do not do that, you damage yourself and you damage the world in which you live in. And so this is what it means to be genuinely human. It's to be created in God's image, to rightly love God and to rightly love others. And the reason why sex and sexuality are such big issues, both in Scripture and in society, is because when the Bible uses the term sex, it uses this Hebrew word yada. Just a couple of examples in Genesis 4. It says Adam lay, or yada, with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. Rebecca, a couple chapters later, the girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. When speaking of King David, the girl was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no intimate relations with her. Now, what is interesting about this term yada is that it does not only refer to sexual intercourse, it also means to deep, intimate knowledge. One example, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four: No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, yada the Lord, because they will all yada me. The point is that the Bible talks about sex in terms of deepest intimacy and deepest knowledge. It's about the way that we relate in an intimate way to one another and also to God. And there's something almost mystical about sex. And when it is abused, it does horrible, horrible things to all of our relationships. Sex deals with how we relate not only to other people, but to God. And so sex, as the Bible describes it, is a spiritual matter, not just a physical matter. There's something happening on the spiritual level when you engage in all forms of sexual activity, not just the physical. Right? The world will love us to believe the lie that we're just these animals and you can just do whatever you want with your bodies and it doesn't really affect anything else. You have these urges and just go meet the urges. The world, the world will love for us to believe that lie. But it's not true. There's something that's significant that takes place on the spiritual and the emotional, psychological level when we engage in sexual activity. And so the world wants us to talk about sex as a purely physical function, but the Bible rightly knows that sexuality is about a deep longing for intimacy. To be known and to know in proper relationship, and it will never be satisfied merely by the physical. So sex is never merely a matter of biology and pleasure. It is certainly about those things, but it is never merely about those things. And the reason this is the case, of course, is found in the beginning. And so you must understand that the central tenet of the universe, as described in Genesis, is relationships. Right relating relationships. And so right relating is the key to living. Think about the relationship, for instance, of the earth to the sun. The earth relates properly to the sun at its appropriate distance. If we were any closer to the sun, we would burn up. If we were any further away from the sun, we would freeze. And when we stop relating rightly to the earth that we live in, when the earth stops relating rightly to the sun, for instance, when we dissolve the ozone layer by not relating rightly to the earth and we put all these carbon emissions into the air and we stop relating rightly to the earth for which we were created for, then the sun stops relating rightly to the world and we burn. 
And then solar ice caps melt because the earth's temperature rises. And then there is flooding. And all of a sudden, when we stop relating rightly to the earth, then all of a sudden everything is thrown into chaos. It's not only this, though, right? There are the ways that our body relates to the composition of the air. We have breathable air, and our lungs relate properly to that. These are obvious, but there are millions and millions and millions of these examples. One in particular is this, the ratio of the strength of electromagnetism to the strength of gravity for a pair of protons is approximately 10 to the 36th power. If we're significantly smaller, only a small and short-lived universe could exist. And so at the very physicist level, there are millions and millions of proper relating combinations that make living possible. Everything is relating rightly to everything, and it is making life livable. And we know, of course, that right relationship is derived from a right-relating God. A God who exists as three differentiated persons in an eternal, radically unifying agape love relationship. We serve a trinity who created all things to relate rightly. The otherness of God and three persons and the oneness of God in unity are both important. His Trinitarian nature is incredibly important to the right relating patterns we see in the universe and the right relating desires that we have within ourselves. And so this right relating God makes humanity in his image. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 says, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his image In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You know, in the parallel passage in chapter 2, humanity receives God's image when he breathes life into them. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God is to have his very self reside within us, in other words. And so when God creates in his own image, he does so explicitly by making male and female together. Gender, in other words, is important. So when a Nebraska school district has instructed its teachers to stop referring to students by gendered expressions, such as boys and girls, and rather use gender-inclusive ones, such as purple penguins instead, they're denying the fact that boys and girls are made in the image of a right-relating God. The school district is telling them, don't use phrases such as boys and girls, you guys, ladies and gentlemen, and similarly gendered expressions to get kids' attention. Rather, create classrooms, classroom names and then ask all the purple penguins to meet on the rug. They're not to ask students to line up as boys or girls, but rather suggest asking them to line up by whether they prefer skateboards or bikes, milk or juice, dogs or cats, summer or winter, talking or listening. Teachers should always ask themselves, will this configuration create a gendered space? The instructions were part of a list called 12 Steps on the Way to Gender Inclusiveness, developed by Gender Spectrum, an organization that provides education, training, and support to help create a gender-sensitive and inclusive environment for children of all ages. Other items on the list include asking all students about their preferred pronouns and decorating the classroom with all genders welcome door hangers. If teachers still find it necessary to mention the genders exist at all, the document states, they must list them as boy, girl, both, or neither. Furthermore, it instructs teachers to interfere 
and interrupt if they ever hear a student talking about gender in terms of boys and girls so the student can learn that this is wrong. What the heck? <laughs> right, we're made in the image of a right-relating God who has made us male and female. That somehow the sexual organs that we have are important and they play an important role in who we are and how we relate to others and how we relate to God. And so his command as his male and female image bearers is what? To be fruitful and increase in number. Genesis 1, 28 tells us. Right? Use your sexual organs. You've been given these sexual organs. Use them. Be sexual people. Know each other on the most intimate level. God celebrates this as good and right and pleasing to him. And God saw all that he had made, Genesis 1.31, and it was very good. Everything is very good at this point. God uses that term seven times to describe his creation. And so when you get to Genesis 2 again, the parallel account of God's creative act, the phrase not good in verse 18 should jump off the page at you. Something is not good with God's creation. This is the first time we've ever experienced that. And the not good is Adam is alone. It's his aloneness that isn't good. And it's not that Adam is just lonely. Right? The problem isn't first and foremost Adam's problem. The problem is actually God's problem. A single individual alone cannot fully image the triune God. Adam needs a helper. He needs a partner to be his image bearer. And so he needs one who is the same as he and yet different than he, like the Trinitarian God in whose image he bears. And so what does God do? He puts Adam into a deep sleep and he takes a rib. He creates Eve, a woman with a different sexual structure from Adam, and they are married What does it tell us? They engage their sexuality and they become one flesh. That something happened both on the physical level as they engage their sexuality and something happened on the spiritual level as it always does. And so notice, God creates sexual expression for the marital context and this context alone. And the reason he does this is because sexual intercourse is God's chosen sign for his marriage covenant. And that may mean nothing to you guys. A sign was a regularly enacted physical expression of the spiritual commitment made to relate rightly between two parties. And so it is a physical expression done with your bodies as a sign, as a testimony, as a witness to what has actually taken place in the spiritual level. There are all sorts of signs in scriptures. Circumcision, the Sabbath day, the, the, when we come forward and we take communion on Sunday mornings. That is the sign of our covenant. It's the thing we do physically to express what has taken place spiritually. So what God is saying by making sexual intercourse the sign of the marriage covenant is that if you enact the physical expression of the sign, then you have also enacted the spiritual commitment of the covenant. You guys need to understand this, that if you engage the physical commitment of the sign, then you have also enacted the spiritual commitment of the covenant. Or in other words, sex creates unity between people on the most intimate level. That of your spirit. 
And sex just does this. It's just what it does. It doesn't matter what your intentions are. Sex unites people. It just does that. It creates a one flesh bond. And what is interesting in Scripture is that if you choose to engage the sign of the marriage covenant, you have by default engaged in the covenant itself. And it's not just Scripture that tells us this. Psychological studies also indicate this as well. That there are hormones within all of our minds called oxytocin. And when we engage in sexual expression with anybody, these are the encoding, bonding hormones in your brain. And your brain encodes these hormones to the person that you're engaging in sexual activity to. And so your ability to relate to other people, your ability to connect in relationship and to know and to be known in relationship is connected and encoded to this person. And so if you try to strip away that process and engage those hormones in the act of another person to re-encode those hormones into another person, you have to go through an incredible, terrible grieving process of ripping your relational hormones away from one person and then reattaching them to another. And in literal terms, therefore, according to Scripture, Premarital or extramarital sex is an oxymoron. Whenever two people choose to have sex outside of verbal vows of a marital commitment, they have literally just chosen to enact one half of a marriage ceremony. They have begun the marital process of fusing their two bodies together into one covenantal flesh. Their flesh has become one, their spirits have become one, they are done one half of a marriage ceremony. They just haven't said the words. And so doing that is as oxymoronic as inviting 300 people to a church wedding, renting the tuxes and the flowers and the food, and getting your pastor. And just when it comes to say, I do, you say, ah, nah, this is just a recreational wedding. You see, sex is God's design, but it is designed for a particular reason and a particular context. And so look how the rest of the story played out. We are told that Adam and Eve were both naked, but they felt no shame. Not only are our bodies exposed and our sexual organs are exposed, but our whole life is exposed to the other person. Eve, Eve and Adam, they knew each other on the most intimate level. They knew every little detail about the other person and they were not ashamed of it. They, they knew each other's little quirks and their insecurities and their, and their little things that annoyed each other. And they didn't care. They were not ashamed of it. They did not judge each other. They could stand before each other from completely exposed, both physically and emotionally and knowledgeably, and they did not feel shame. They did not objectify each other or lust after each other. There was no hint of sexual exploitation or abuse or manipulation or dominance because the way they related to God as his proper image bearers allowed them to relate rightly to one another. But of course, we get to chapter 3, and we all know how the story goes. Adam and Eve, they choose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They stop reflecting God's image properly once they ate of that tree. They established themselves as kings over their own kingdoms. And they no longer related rightly to others. And look now at Adam and Eve's first act after they ate of the tree. It's an interesting one. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it tells us that both of their eyes were opened. 
and they realized that they were naked. The first thing that comes into their mind is that they realize that they are naked, that they are exposed. And so what do they do? Their very first act is to sew fig leaves together and make a covering for themselves. That's an interesting first act. Right? Adam had created his self-reigning kingdom where he was king, but now he was insecure about his ability to rule. He knew that he was king. He wanted to stand upon his own throne, to sit upon his own throne and stand within his own kingdom, but he knew that he could not reign and rule appropriately. And the first time he looked over at his wife, Eve, he objectified her, and he looked at her nakedness, and he desired her in ways that he had never desired her before. Not that they did not desire each other sexually, but he lusted after her, and he objectified her, and he saw her as now a piece of meat to be devoured. He stood above her, and he shamed her for who she was and what she had done in tempting him to eat of the fruit. So not only was their sexuality distorted, but now their intimate knowledge of one another was distorted, and it was used as a weapon against the other. But it wasn't just Adam's interaction with Eve. It was also the way that he viewed himself. It was the knowledge of himself that was distorted. Adam thought all of these things, but he also realized that he was exposed and that Eve probably was feeling the exact same things and thinking the exact same things about he as, she, as he was thinking about her. And so when God comes looking for Adam in the garden, he tells God, God, I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid from you. I went running into the bushes to hide from you. I began to think and I began to feel all of these things that I'd never experienced before. I had these thoughts about Eve that were going through my mind. And I looked upon her body and I looked upon my body and I started judging her and I started uh, reigning over her and, and blaming her and shaming her for who she was. I, I had never done that before. I, all these things started annoying me really badly about her that didn't annoy me before. I, I looked at her and I was like, man, you're just, oh, you're, you're, you're so stupid. How could you have done this thing? God, something's wrong. And so I, I ran away. I, I don't know what it is, God, but I ran away and I hid. But of course, God knows. He says, well, Adam, who told you that you were naked? Obviously, you have a new self-discovery, right? You have self-discovery about your nakedness. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And Adam's probably like, how did I know that I was naked? <laughs> how did I know that I was exposed to the world? Because that stupid woman you put here with me gave me some fruit. All intimacy, sexual intimacy and knowledgeable intimacy has been distorted and broken. We no longer relate rightly to God because we have disobeyed him and we reject him. And therefore we no longer relate to one another. And so look at the curse that falls upon the first married couple. It says, with pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This word desire, within its context, means lust. Ah, Eve, you are now going to objectify your husband. You're going to objectify men. You're going to use them as tools you're going to use them as manipulative objects to get your way. 
You're going to rule over them, and in return, men, you are going to do the same to women. You're going to objectify them. You're going to lust after them. They are going to be seen as objects to benefit your own life. Love is no longer the way that you relate to other humans. But you use each other, and you twist each other, so that your life would be improved. Your sexuality, in other words, the way you relate male and female is broken. And because you are a man or because you are a woman, I'm going to put certain standards on you. And I'm going to have certain expectations of the way that you live your life and what your role in society is. Did you know that we are the first society in the history of humanity that has given women rights? And we still don't give women a lot of rights. It wasn't that long ago when women were not allowed to vote. Why? Because your sexual organs are different than mine? Women still don't make as much money as men do within our own society if they're in the same position. We still have expectations of what a woman's role in a household is. What a woman's role in society is. We still have expectations of what a man's role in society is, what a man's role in the household is. Our sexuality has been distorted. And we use our sexuality to relate to one another wrongly. And so this text is saying that the product of your sex will be painful, your childbirth will be painful, that your sexual desires will produce pain. Your intimate relationships and your deepest longings will also be painful. Your desire to know another person and be known in intimate relationship will be painful. So remember that sex outside of its proper context, when it is done, when it is not done in right relationship, it damages people. It damages ourselves and it damages the world in which we live in. And it does this. It just does it whether we intend for it to do that or not. It just does it. And so what are we to do? In 1 Corinthians, Paul was dealing with a culture that was overly sexualized, very much like ours in a lot of ways. Corinth was a city well known for its availability of wide variety of sexual options. Aphrodite's temple was there. She was the goddess of love. She had 1,000 shrine prostitutes who were willing and available to do whatever with whomever, whenever they wanted. It was said that to be a Corinthian meant that you had no moral center. And so Paul tells us that the Corinthians' motto was, everything is permissible for me. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food. The point is that they believed that if you have an an urge, that you should just meet the urge because that's what our bodies are for. And so if you you are hungry, well, then there is food to be eaten. And if you're tired, well, then you should get some rest. If you have a desire to go have sex, well, then you should go have sex. That was the Corinthian motto. But Paul already knew that sex was for the marital union. And nothing more. And so he responds to this motto by saying, Flee from sexual immorality. For all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. 
Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You see, the Corinthians had this idea that, man, you know what? I'm going to let the world educate me. I'm going to let my natural urges educate me on how I should use my body. And Paul is saying, no! You guys once were like the Corinthians, but you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and so you should be living your lives differently. You have the Holy Spirit living in you, and now you are the temple of the living God. Remember that, remember that in Genesis 2, God breathes life into his creation, and they become his image bearers because he resides inside of them. And now Paul is saying, guys, you have received the Holy Spirit. God lives in you. You are his temple. Therefore, treat your bodies appropriately. God has reestablished what it means to live rightly with him. Therefore, live rightly with one another. You don't belong to your self-indulgent, self-reigning ways that were enshrouded in pain and agony and death. You have been set free from those things by the blood of Jesus. God has gone to incredible lengths to free you from the damage and the pain that abusing your relationships has created. And so live like it. Rely on God's Spirit to live through you, to reclaim your humanity which has been lost. You do not have to live like the Corinthians any longer. You do not have to live like the Americans any longer. You are different. Your humanity, the reason for which you were created, has been reestablished. Live like it. And God desires for you to be genuinely human. He's not putting a list on the wall and say, hey, don't have sex, don't do these things because, hey, I'm just going to put a list on the wall and it's arbitrary. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, here is the model for genuine humanity. Here's what it means to be created in my image. Here is how I created you to function, to love me and to love others, to relate rightly to me and to relate rightly to others. And now I have given you that gift of reclaiming that genuine humanity by my spirit and so live rightly. Do not objectify, do not lust, but love. Live rightly. I'm going to invite Emily up. We're going to reflect on this a little bit. You know, the lead actor in Fifty Shades of Grey said that every day after shooting that movie, he had to go home and take a hot shower. Every day after he shot that movie, he had to go home and he had to take a hot shower before he could look his wife or his daughter in the eyes. Why? Do you think there's something inside of him telling him that maybe he shouldn't be doing what he was doing? That he wasn't living rightly? He wasn't living up to the standard that God had created him to live? And so what did he do? He had this guilty conscience and he, and he tried to wash it clean by water. And although it is absolutely possible to be washed clean, it can never be done by taking a shower. We need the blood of Jesus to wash us clean. And so here's the thing, guys. All of us have failed in this regard. All of us have failed sexually. Because we have broken sexuality. And the way that you have failed may look different than the way that I have failed. But we've all failed. We've all related to others in a broken manner. We relate to men and women in an abusive way when God had created us to relate rightly. 
And so if you acknowledge that you have failed, there are a couple things that you need to know. First, over and over in the scriptures, it is the most scandalized sinners, often including the sexual sinners, that are most drawn to Jesus. Because they realize that their humanity is not living up to the standard that God had created them to live in. And they're trying to find life in the ways of the world, and that might be through their sexuality or through drugs or, or through uh, prostitution, as often mentioned in Scripture. They're trying to reclaim humanity by their own efforts and by their own works, twisted as they may be. But they're drawn to Jesus for some reason. And it's because here stands the right humanity. Here stands the humanity that they were created to live, and they were drawn to him because they want to be like him. And what does he do? He does not shame them. He does not condemn them. Like the video, he crawls down into the tub, and he embraces them. And his humanity rubs off on their humanity, and they come to life. And so you need to know that Jesus welcomes you. If you recognize that you've struggled and that you are broken in your sexuality, that Jesus embraces you and he welcomes you. And as you fall more in love with God, you are going to be changed. You're going to be changed. That's how it works. You're going to be changed from the inside out and the driving principle of your life is going to become love. As your humanity begins to change and you become the creation that God had intended you to be, then you are going to begin to love. That will be the overflowing principle and the driving principle of your life, and it will change how you relate to others. And so is it hard to live a morally pure life? Heck yeah. Absolutely it's hard. Sexuality is a healthy expression of right-related, healthy humanity. And right-related healthy relationships. And so my challenge is to learn to love and you will see that all other things will become reformed.